Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. With all that's going on in the world, I thought it was best once we finished 2 Samuel that we would jump into the New Testament and study the book of Revelation. I think we're living in the last days. I shouldn't say I think. We know we are living in the last days according to the Messiah. The sign has been given for the last days with the world wars that he predicted to be the sign of the last days. What we've seen so far is that there's been a convergence of things happening all over the planet that are coming to a head. The table is setting, so to speak. Things are in place for things to go down, whether that's a one-world government, a one-world currency, Israel in the Middle East, and Russia and Iran alliance, and uh, the apostasy that we see happen in the world. All of these pieces or slices of the pie that talk about prophecy are converging into one. And that's why I think if we study the book of Revelation, which we're going to do, you're going to see how that table is getting set. Now, it's interesting that Daniel said in chapter 12, he was told to shut up the words that he had seen and heard and seal the book until the time of the end. Then he stated, many shall run to and fro, and the knowledge shall increase. And that was a prediction that he was to seal up what he had seen, and then eventually it would come to light in the end times, in the last days, And the idea would be that knowledge shall increase. And it's talking about intellectual knowledge about science or math or anything like that. What it's talking about, it's the knowledge. It's the knowledge he was told to seal up. Because when he made predictions and a lot of the prophets made predictions, they had a fuzzy idea about what was going to happen. The idea that Daniel is giving is that the generation that lives closest to the fulfillment of prophecy understands it the best. And he says many will run to and fro. The idea is many will go and try to look to try to figure this out in the last days, and the knowledge shall increase. And that's exactly what we've seen the last hundred years or even the last 50 years. We have a better understanding of prophecy because we live closest to that generation of it being fulfilled. And therefore, you and I are starting to put details to things and seeing how the table is being set. If you and I would have lived 500 years ago, you would have had a general idea, but it would have been real vague to you. But right now, it's easy to see how someone could control the finances of the whole world. You could easily see how someone could put a mark on every person. The technology is there. You see all these things that generations past could not see. And that's what Daniel predicted, and that's what we're seeing. So therefore, the book of Revelation is the appropriate book to study right now in our day and time. And it's intended to be understood. It's intended to be comprehended, and it's intended to be studied. But let me give you some preliminaries before we study the book of Revelation. Let me give you a little dirty secret that's happening. As you know, and I think I've said it before, 29% of the Bible, nearly 30% of the Bible is biblical prophecy pointing to the future. And yet today, it is being ignored completely by the majority of churches. In fact, some people estimate nearly 70% of the churches will not talk on prophecy whatsoever. How do you miss almost 30% of the Bible? How do you cherry-pick your way through that? And interesting things are happening that we talk about this convergence of prophecy, and a lot of things are happening, and yet the church is in the biggest state of apathy and ignorance concerning it. Ask the average Christian on the street what they understand about prophecy. They know zero. They know zero, unless they're at a church that teaches prophecy. And we try to make sure that you're up on things, current events, and stuff like that for prophecy reasons. But let me tell you the dirty little secret before we get in so you understand fully what's happening to the church in America. Here's the dirty little secret. These are the preliminaries. There are several reasons why prophecy is being ignored by the pastors and churches in America and around the world, I should say. The first thing is, the pastor is purposely cherry-picking through the Scriptures to avoid prophecy. Why? Well, I can tell you this. Prophecy thins out the crowds. It scares people. 
Those who are not prepared for it, it scares them. It should. If you're not a believer, it should scare you. You should be scared of the judgment of God. That's not popular with people, especially the millennials, so we don't want to frighten them. Or they'll say, you know, we don't want to depress people. We don't want to bore them with this. It's all gloom and doom. We want to give them a version of a sanitized world like Joel Olstein, like we're living in a bubble and nothing's happening. That's one of the issues. The other thing is it could be the pastor's ignorant. I hate to say this, but here's a dirty little secret. Plenty of guys go to seminary and graduate and know nothing of prophecy whatsoever. You know why? They're not required to take prophecy. They skip right through it. So a guy spends all kinds of money going through seminary and comes out, and the average layman can outdo him on prophecy. How does that happen? It's all over the seminaries, by the way. So you have untrained pastors in the pulpit that are completely ignorant of this. Huh. Dr. Howard Hendricks said this, you cannot impart what you do not possess. The majority of churches that don't teach prophecy is because the pastor doesn't know it. He's ignorant of it. He's never developed that area of theology. He's never spent any time studying, nor is he going to, by the way. And that church, that congregation will remain in the dark about it. The other dirty little secret, I hate to tell you this, but a lot of pastors in this profession are lazy. They're just flat out lazy. You know why? They don't want to put in the time to study. They don't want to put in the 15 to 20 hours per week it takes for a sermon. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. And as you know, in every profession, there are doctors that are good and there are doctors that are bad. There are good teachers and then there's bad teachers. There's good professors and there's bad professors. And every profession's got them, right? In my profession, the badness is because of laziness. They don't study. Part of my week, in fact, the majority of my week is spent studying to prepare for things. 15 to 20 hours at least for every sermon. They don't want to put in that time. So they're not going to know it. The other thing is this. The dirty little secret is pastors throw out the baby with the bathwater. They don't want to be criticized for being a charlatan or a zealot because they don't want to be lumped in with the herald campings of the world who made false predictions and put date settings out. They don't want to be lumped in with John Hagee's four blood moons or Jonathan Kahn's harbinger. They don't want to be lumped into that. So you know what they do? They throw the baby out with the bathwater. I already know there's a lot of charlatans out there. I know there's a bunch of junk out there. But that shouldn't keep me from teaching prophecy. I'll teach it in a conservative manner, and I'm not going to date set and get out there on crazy things and crazy signs. Even now you have people going crazy on their Internet thinking in September something's major going to happen. There's going to be a sign in the heaven and this and that. And it's like, that's nonsense. It's crazy. And these pastors don't want to be lumped into that. Well, that's just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's wrong. The other thing, I hate to tell you this, a lot of pastors want to be liked. So what they preach is they preach fluffy things, motivational things, emotional things, self-help, feel-good things. You're all right, I'm all right, let's go have lunch kind of mentality. They want to make friends with everybody. And here's the problem is they're not telling people what they need to hear. They're ignoring this. And one thing that aggravates me to death, and I hear this a lot, these pastors, they want to punt to being humble, and it's really not. They'll say, I'm not pre-millennial, I'm not all-millennial, I'm not post-millennial. I just am a pan-millennial. I just think it's all going to pan out. Have you ever heard someone say that? You know what that guy is saying? I don't want to tick anybody off. I don't want it to upset anybody. It's just we all win at the end, and let's just leave it at that. Well, that doesn't teach anybody anything. And then the other dirty secret is the pastor knows the prophecy and he has a divergent view that's a little weird and he doesn't want to tell it to his congregation because he knows the congregation differs with him. That's another issue. The other dirty lie is the pastor is openly hostile to prophecy. They're scoffers. The scoffers right in the pulpit. Liberalism has infiltrated theology, by the way. I hate to tell you this, but it's come in the form and it's attacked prophecy for that rare reason is to get the pastors to not talk about it. Let me give you a little hint on this. When you hear 
pastors or biblical scholars or whatever they are say, well, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That's a code word for liberalism. As you will see in the text today, John does not call it apocalyptic literature. He calls it prophecy. But just like the communists of today change words and then change the meanings to words, the liberalism has done the same thing with prophecy. They change the name from prophecy to apocalyptic literature, and then they pour a different meaning, and this is what they say. Oh, that's apocalyptic literature. It's all symbol, so we can't understand what it means. So there's no use even trying. It's kind of similar what communists do with changing the names of morality, right? God says homosexuality is wrong. What does communism or Marxism do? It changes the name, saying, no, it's an alternative lifestyle, and then pours a different meaning into it. Not only have they done that in politics, but they've done that in the Bible, in the liberalism. It's the same tactic. Change the meaning of the name and then pour a different meaning into it. So anytime you hear apocalyptic literature, that's a liberal talking. They don't want to discuss it, and they just chuck it away and say, we just can't understand it. So all of this to say, what's happened? Well, when you have pastors avoiding, pastors scoffing, or being ignorant, or whatever I've named, what happens is when you don't teach prophecy, the church goes to sleep. That's what happens. That's why churches are so apathetic and indifferent towards what's going on in the world. They act like they live in a bubble with their lives. They're just focused in on their own little lives, and they don't see the bigger picture and what God's doing in the whole world. And basically, when you become myopic, you become spiritually blind, and you go to sleep spiritually. We have a lot of Christians in America that are walking zombies. They have no idea what's happening. They are clueless, ignorant, and they don't care. Their head is buried in the sand, and they're asleep. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to be asleep because the admonition from our Lord was, Watch, therefore, for you do not know the day or hour. Watch is constantly being told to us to watch. So we want to watch because it has several implications. So let's begin as we go into our first principle in the book of Revelation. The first principle is this, and it's in your outline. We must understand that once the day of fulfillment comes, that John is talking about, when these things will happen, there will be no delay in its execution. It's not going to be long periods of time. It's going to happen very rapidly. But let's explore the text as we start in, and let's unpack it for a little bit. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's just stop right there and unpack it. The revelation means the apocalypsis, the disclosure, that there was something hidden that wasn't told in the rest of the Bible. This is the one book that reveals more that was not explained before. So something that was hidden is going to be revealed now, a disclosure, an unsealing of something. And he says it's of Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about that. It could be the way the Greek is worded. It could be of who Jesus is, more of who he is, and I think it is that. And it's also of the events that, it, that he's describing events that the Father told him about. And he says, which God gave him. The idea of God the Father gave this to Jesus to pass on to John. And it's going to go from God the Father to Jesus to an angel to John. And the idea of this is authority. That what John is about to receive comes directly from God the Father, and it has divine authority attached to this. And this is extremely important of the authority. Because... Today, as you can see, and throughout history, this authority has been challenged by people outside the church and in the church about what John is saying. A lot of believers, believe it or not, do not believe that John is giving what is accurately from the Father. Yes, in a lot of the literature, and a lot of the liberal books, they think John was simply dreaming things up, that he was, wasn't really clear on things, and he was fuzzy and we can't make any heads or tails out of it. That's really what it comes to. It's almost like, and I think I'm right on this, that God anticipates 
that this book is going to get a pushback from people. And so John, right out of the point, is saying this comes from God the Father and has authority through Jesus Christ. And what is the purpose? To show his servants. Now, the word servant is doulos. It's a special kind of believer. Okay, and I want you to note this. A doulos is a special kind of believer. It's a special kind of servant. Not all believers are doulosses. Now, what do you mean by this? A servant, a doulos in those days, and even in the Old Testament days, was a servant who had been set free by his master and decided to stay with his master because of the love for his master. Even though he was set free, he stayed with his master and served his master as a doulos. And what they would do is take that servant, and then they would go to the temple, and they would pierce his ear and make a hole in it at the temple, and it signified he was a doulos with a hole in his earlobe. And that's what he's saying to his servants, the doulosses, those who love him, not simply serve him out of duty, but those who really love Jesus, who are paying attention to him, doing what he wants them to do, obeying. That's the kind of people he's talking to. Because I can tell you right now, if believers don't obey the Lord and they have their head buried in the sand, they will not listen to the book of Revelation. And they will not do the things written in it as it's commanded. So it makes a distinction in there. Remember, not all believers are mature. Not all believers are sold out for Christ. Not all believers follow very closely. Some follow very far away. Yes, they got their fire insurance, but they're not about to get too close to Messiah because of the demands he makes on them. But a doulos is one who follows him very closely. He says, the things which must shortly take place. Let's unpack that a little bit. The things, these are future events about himself, the second coming, and the, all the events and judgments tied to this that was not talked about in the Old Testament. And then he says, which must shortly take place. Let's unpack what he means by that. It does not mean soon or immediately. And it doesn't mean that it's imminent. That's not what it's saying. It's basically saying the way you can interpret it is when the day comes, there will be no delay in its execution. The idea is the execution of it will happen very rapidly. Now, what do you mean? Well, it takes seven years for it to happen. Seven lunar years, for, that's a 360-day year, seven years, to finish this judgment. It's very quick. And as you see, when we get into the book of Revelation, things, once they start happening, they start happening very quickly, real quick. And no one's able to catch their breath. It's boom, 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 boom. One judgment piled on another, and it continues to build very rapidly. That's the idea here. Jesus kind of explained this a little bit in turn, talking about birth pains. He said this in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. All of these are the beginning of sorrows or birth pains. And he equated the rapidity of it to birth pains. So once they start, they get more frequent and they get more intense. And that's the idea. I remember I was listening to a lecture by one of the professors I had in seminary, and they had flown uh, John Walvard in to teach us at Liberty for uh, eschatology. And uh, they asked Dr. Walvard, who is the, kind of the prince of prophecy, been one of the big guys at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary in prophecy, studied the prophecy 40, 50 years. And uh, I remember in class they asked him, Dr. Walvard, has anything surprised you? Anything caught you off guard in prophecy and this was probably in the late 90s. And the one thing he said, and I remember it, and he says, the one thing I'm surprised about is how rapidly things are developing. And I thought, isn't that interesting? That's exactly what he said. Once the things start, the execution of things will happen very quickly. I want you to look back, and as the table is setting in the last 10 years, I want you to think how fundamentally different our society is compared to 10 years ago. I mean, really think about that. It has fundamentally changed, hasn't it? 
we now are involved in certain sins that no one 10 years ago would even dream about. You see the rapidity of things? The birth pains are starting. Now, we're not talking about the tribulation. We're talking about the lead-up of the tribulation. And the thing about it is the table is getting set, and the table is setting quicker than, than we're used to. It's almost in the idea of, in math, exponential things happening. Not multiplication, but kind of just exponential. And that being the case, things will happen at a greater rate and, and more intense than we're used to seeing. And that's, that's what we're watching. Just think about the church. Could you imagine what you're seeing in the church today compared to 10 years ago? What the church is putting up with, what the church is involved in. It's almost shocking how fast apostasy has happened, how quickly things are developing. That's the idea. So here's the deal as we get ready to move on. The point we want to take away from this is if we're watching for the Lord's return, the hallmark of what you're seeing, the season of, is the rapidity of what he predicted. And if you're watching, that's exactly what's happening. So that should give you hope that you're getting close to that tribulation period. Now, you and I will not go through the tribulation period. We'll be raptured prior to that. So the idea is that means we're ever closer to the rapture of the church, where he takes us home before this awful time. Again, the convergence of things are happening. That gives us hope. But if your head is buried in the sand, you have no hope. Let's go to point number two. If we continue to read, to hear, and obey this particular book, then we will receive a blessing or reward. This is the only book of the Bible that it says that if you do it, listen to it, obey it, you get a special blessing. I'll explain the blessing just a little bit, but let's unpack this a little bit. Verse 1 again, and he goes, And he sent and signified it. Now, I want you to underline that word signify. What it means is he's given a sign for his word. This is a very Jewish concept. Us as Gentiles really don't understand this. But what he is saying is he sent and and he's doing it through signs. Signs. Jews look for signs. This is a very Jewish book. In fact, this is the Jewish manual of how to survive the tribulation. It's a survival manual to Jews. Since we won't be here, it'll be Israel who he's dealing with. So how does God deal with the Jews? In signs. What do you mean? Well, let me explain something. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 278 of them are allusions to the Old Testament, and they're dealing with signs. Now, here's the thing. I think one of the blessings that we receive from God in studying the book of Revelation is because it incorporates our understanding of the Old Testament. In order to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the 39 books of the Old Testament because there's so many allusions to it. So it'll give visions and signs that if you know your Old Testament will point back to those issues. And you have to know that, otherwise you'll foul the thing up. And so the the issues of signs are allusions to the Old Testament. And then when John gives other signs, other visions, and they don't have an Old Testament attachment to, he then will explain what the symbol is. So in that sense, if you know your Old Testament and you listen to what John explains the signs as, the book of Revelation is very easy to comprehend. It is not a bunch of gobbledygook that you can't make sense of. It is all explained either by John or the Old Testament. So the basis of the hermeneutic that you have to understand in studying the book of Revelation is you must know the Old Testament. But there's some issues out there, and I have to warn you of these issues. There are people who do not take the book of Revelation in a literal sense. They go into the visions, and they go into the symbols, and they make it up whatever they want to do. it. So this is called the non-literal approach, the allegorical approach, the book of Revelation, or a historical approach, or even a preterist approach. And I don't want to get too technical, but here's the deal. If you take the book of Revelation as all symbols and then pour your own meanings into it, you can make it say anything you want it to say. And that's exactly what happened in history. 
When the Alexandrian school got its hands on the book of Revelation, the Alexandrian school was in Alexandrian Egypt, and it was liberal. It got influenced by Greek thought, Neoplatonism, and dualism. And hence, the people of that school, I'll mention them later on, allegorized the text, and Augustine became the champion of that, and he set in motion the Catholic version of interpreting the book of Revelation that lasted hundreds and hundreds of years until after the Protestant Reformation happened and the Anabaptists broke out and the Plymouth Brethren broke out and finally started interpreting the book of Revelation in a literal sense and went back to how the original disciples of the disciples interpreted the book of Revelation. And so what they did is they allegorized things or they made it symbolic of church history. I'll give you an example in the historical approach This came from the Reformers, like Luther. And the issue became, they started interpreting the book of Revelation as all historical, that it it was a history book of the church. Do you know why they did that? Because Luther was calling the Pope at that time the Antichrist. So he came up with his own system, allegorized the text, and said the Pope is the Antichrist. And you know how the Catholic Church fought back? They came up with a view called preterism. They said, you can't call the Pope the Antichrist. Everything happened before 70 A.D., So a Jesuit priest, Alcazar, responded to Luther's attack on the Pope with preterism. So all these non-literal approaches, all these allegorical approaches came in reaction to other people fighting in the church, and none of them were true. They all went away from the literalness of the Scriptures. Now, where do we get the precedent of taking prophecy in a literal manner? Where do we get that hermeneutic? Well, you get it from the Old Testament. It's real simple. The precedent is set in the Old Testament. And let me take you back to Genesis. We get our first understanding of biblical interpretation from Moses. Who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament? Moses. In the book of Genesis, Moses will give something like 12 prophecies that are contained within the book of Genesis, that come to fruition within the time frame of the book of Genesis. That spans thousands of years, but they do come true within Genesis. And what Moses does is he shows you how to properly interpret Scripture, especially prophecy. And in those 12 prophecies that come true in the book of Genesis, all of them come true literally. Literally. So the precedent is set by Moses. This is how you interpret prophecy. And that precedent is set throughout the entire Old Testament. Things are literally fulfilled. And then by the time we get to Messiah, think about the Messiah's coming. Think about this. 109 prophecies came true in the life of Messiah in his first coming, in his ministry. 109 prophecies. And all 109 came literally True, born in Bethlehem, crucified between two thieves. All that the Messiah fulfilled was literal. Why in the world would we think about uh, prophecies about the second coming would come true any other way than literal? So you see, my friends, the precedent has been set with Moses, the Old Testament, even Messiah. And then if you go to church history, the early disciples of the disciples, the followers of John and Peter and those guys, when you look at those writings of those early church fathers, they believed in literalism. And you know what they called it? Killianism. Okay? Which meant that they took the prophecies as future and literal. Today, we call that futurism. You and I would be considered a futurist. But if we lived as a disciple of John, we have been called a Killianist. We believed in a future, and it was literal. That was the most sense. So here's the rule, guys, as we study the book of Revelation. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up with nonsense. That's the rule. And it's a good rule. Let me repeat it. When the plain sense makes sense, do not look for any other sense. 
lest you end up with nonsense. So these people like today, they're telling you on the internet in September, there's going to be a sign in the heaven. They said, astrological sign of Virgo is going to have the sun and the moon above them, and the moon's going to be under her feet in the sky, and that means a sign is happening. It's, it's Revelation 12. And it's like, you fools. That's not what Revelation 12 is talking about. The woman with 12 stars and the sun and the moon is Israel. That's what it refers to. It refers to Joseph's dream. But you see, if you don't know the Old Testament context, you'll take that and go crazy with it. And they're saying, oh, look at the, the stars. There's going to be a, ba- a big sign in the sky. Or just like remember the blood moons that came out. If you would have read the book of Joel and Revelation, the blood moons only occur within the tribulation. Don't occur before. If the blood moon's happening now, you'd be in the tribulation. That's a problem. I don't want to be here for that. But yet, people do it, and they sell books. It's crazy. They won't take it in a literal sense. Now, let's go back to the text. He says, He sent it by his angel. We don't know what angel this is. It could be Gabriel. To his servant, John. Okay, notice how John's not even called the apostle. He's simply called the doulos, the doulos John, who bore witness, and this is important, to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. So he, he heard the word of God, he heard the testimony of Jesus, and he, and he saw things, and all of them are equated to the word of God, okay? Now, again, it's almost as if John's anticipating something. He is anticipating that somebody's going to claim, in fact, many people will claim, that he's not speaking for God. He's given a threefold response. This, what I'm about to tell you, is coming directly from God. It's not human speculation. It's not me having a dream. It's not mere religious reflection. It's coming from God. And thus, you must make a decision about what I am saying. You either believe I precisely told you exactly what I saw, exactly what came from Jesus' mouth, and what came from God the Father. You either believe me or you reject me. But don't patronize me, John is saying. Don't say I'm sincere but mistaken. Don't say I tried to tie the close events of my life to what I was seeing. Don't patronize me is what John is saying. You know why I'm saying that? Because scholars patronize John. They say he was wrong. He was wrong about saying things were imminent. They say that John didn't understand things, that he was dreaming it all up. Can you imagine that? But see, John anticipates that. And he says, you have a choice. Either I'm telling you the truth or I'm lying about what I saw. And you must make a decision. And I can tell you this. Unfortunately, a lot of the church thinks the book of Revelation is nonsense. Yeah, dead serious. Even Christians believe this. I'll show you in history how this happened. Verse 3, here's the blessing. Blessed is he. It's one of the seven Beatitudes in the book. Who reads... It's the idea of reading it in a public congregation, just like we're doing. We're reading it right now. That's what they would do in the early church. They would read the book of Revelation because no one had Bibles at that point in time. So the the pastor had to get up there and read it, and people had to listen very intently because they didn't have it in front of them. Who reads, and those, plural, talking about the congregation, who hears the words of the prophecy. So blessed is the church who preaches on this, and his congregation listens. You will receive a blessing for that. We'll explain that in a little bit. But because, like I said, 70% of the churches are not doing this anymore. And then he says, who hears the words of this prophecy? Look at the word. Prophecy. Does he call it apocalyptic literature? No, he does not. He says it's prophecy. Anticipating the accusation from liberals that it's apocalyptic literature. And keeps or observes, and there's obedience required in the book of Revelation, those things which are written in it. So you have to read it, you have to hear it, and then you have to obey it. And that, my friends, will give you the blessing that he's offering by doing it. Now, here's the question. Why this book, of the 66 books in the whole Bible, does this have 
a blessing attached to those who hear it, read it, and obey it. Let me explain some church history to you. I know history might be born, but this is very important for you to understand. In church history, this book was neglected, ignored, scoffed at, and even rejected, and even to this day is rejected by believers. The canonization of this book, it was one of the last books to be canonized into the Scriptures. Now, here's the deal. The early church fathers who were Killianists, like Ignatius, Papias, Irenaeus, Justin, Eusebius, Apollonius, Theophilus, Tertullian, all held to it and wanted it in the canon. But liberalism had already creeped into the church, and the liberal church fathers would not recognize it. They refused it. Does it surprise you that liberalism would reject it? Heretical sects that popped up in the early 2nd and 3rd century and 4th century were opposed to it. Isn't that funny? Most of the cults today cannot stand the book of Revelation or they reinterpret it. Interesting, huh? The school of Alexandria, like I told you, the liberal school of theology. See, back then there was two schools. The school in Antioch that produced Killianism, literalism, and futurism was in Antioch. And then the liberal school was in Alexandria, Egypt. And Alexandria, Egypt ended up winning the day of liberalism. They opposed it. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, who influenced Augustine, who became the capstone for the Catholic Church, and Jerome eventually, who totally spiritualized the book. They were against it. And so what they did is they allegorized it, basically took it as all symbolic, and it went underground for centuries in the Catholic Church. The Catholics today won't even touch the book of Revelation. Augustine, my friends, note this. Augustine is responsible from turning the church from a literal approach to the Revelation to an allegorical approach. He's responsible. So when you see even the Reformation churches today, the Reformed churches allegorizing the book of Revelation, they can thank Augustine for that one. He is not a hero in my book in church history. Later on, catch this, in, during the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, guys like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Erasmus considered the book of Revelation non-canonical, non-scripture. Does it surprise you that Reformed churches today, the high Calvinist churches today, Reformed churches, follow their masters, follow their masters, Luther and Calvin, who didn't consider the book of Revelation scripture? Huh. Shouldn't shock us. That's the problem we're seeing today in the Reformed churches. And three, it anticipates scoffers. Peter even warned about this, that in the last days, scoffers would come. What surprises all of us is not the scoffing from that comes from the outside, but the scoffing that's coming from the inside. On the outside, just to give you an example, a couple years ago, Michelle Bachman, Christian, congresswoman, accused Obama of setting the table for the last days when he was arming Syrian terrorists like al-Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood, and al-Nusra in Syria. She said, man, he's setting the table for the last days, putting Israel in peril and, and lighting up the Middle East, because all that's predicted, right, for that, for that whole region to blow up. She got accused of just, oh, she's accusing Obama of, of ushering the last days. And she didn't say that, but she was saying, you're setting the table. You're helping this situation out. And, of course, she gets mocked. Then, obviously, the Hollywood crowd who mocks everything made several movies of recent, two joke movies. This is the end and Rapture Palooza. I mean, think about how blasphemous their movies were. They had Jesus coming back in the movie, and they had a shot where he was shot out of the sky or something like that. And then it said that uh, one movie critic said that Satan and God and Jesus are ultimately killed, leaving nonbelievers to live in peace. Crazy, huh? Imagine if they would have made a movie and took out Muhammad like that. What kind of backlash? Their heads would be rolling, right? But they'll do it to us. They'll do it to us. Let's talk about inside. And you have to know this before we get into the book of Re You have to know some church history, just a little bit. I'm not going to get too technical. 
The Swiss reformer, Bullinger, Henrik Bullinger, you might have seen his books by Bullinger, scoffed at the book of Revelation. He said, we also reject the Jewish dream of the millennium or the golden age on earth before the last judgment. He rejected the literalism of interpreting the book of Revelation. Martin Luther, he said Revelation was neither apostolic nor prophetic, quote-unquote. And because of its overuse of visions and symbols, Christ was neither taught nor accepted in this book. Luther was offended by the book of Revelation, it says. John Calvin, attacking Killianism or attacking literalist or futurism in its interpretation of the book of Revelation, said... Killianism is a fiction that is too childish either to need or to be worth refutation. These are the reformers, guys, mocking the book of Revelation. These are not outsiders. These are the reformers. Do you see what John is anticipating? Do you see why he's pleading with you and I? What I'm seeing is coming from God. Don't reject what I'm saying. Because in the church, there's a rejection towards the book of Revelation. There's already a pushback in church history. And now even today, there's a pushback among evangelicals. Let me show you a few. The first one up, Mark Driscoll. Doesn't even have a church now. This guy. He said, we spend most of our time trying to figure out how to avoid the pain and evil of this world while reading dumb books about the rapture, just hoping to get out. So scoff. He continues to say, he mocks the idea of the rapture for believers in a one-world government with an antichrist who makes people wear a mark to sell or trade. He adds that this kind of end-time mission is not the message from Jesus, but rather one concocted from a cunning serpent. He just accused you and I of listening to the devil, and the information in the book of Revelation is from the devil, not from John. You see what I'm talking about? He mocks an imminent rapture. He claims that the rapture doctrine is evidence of a sickness in American Christians and mocks those who have a goal of leaving this trailer park of a planet before God's tornado touches down on all sinners. He falsely calls dispensationalists, or this, those who take it literally, nutty Christian end-time prophecies, Kaczynski's, like Ted Kaczynski. He states, we are not eschatologically classic dispensationalists and believe that this is divisive and dogmatic which surrounds the second coming, and these are unprofitable speculations because the time and exact details of his return are unclear to us. You see how he said unclear to us? They're not unclear. Next one. This comes from a movie with God on our side. It's by Mark Tooley, Institute for Religion and Democracy. The film's main message to evangelicals is that this old religious right crassly imposed a pro-Israel U.S. foreign policy based on its end-time theology, creating untold suffering among largely innocent Palestinians. You've got to be kidding me, right? We're the cause of having the Palestinians suffer? No, they're suffering because of Islam. That's why they're suffering. It has nothing to do with the Jews either. But if the Bible and the book of Revelation, you'll clearly see it's very pro-Israel. It's all about Israel. The whole Old Testament is about Israel. If you don't get that message, you're off the mark. What Christian would divorce himself from Israel? they got to be crazy. But apostates do, and then they mock it. How about this guy, Tony Campolo? He hates us, rejects the doctrine of Christ's imminent return. He calls it a weird little form of fundamentalism. He said this, that the whole sense of the rapture, which may occur at any moment, is used as a device to oppose engagement with principalities and powers and political and economic structures of our age. He claims that those Christians who do this make a big thing of their claim that we are now living in the final stage of church history prior to the second coming and have been the cause of extremely detrimental consequences. He goes, they don't care about the needy. They have such a negative impact on geopolitics, he says. And it can only lead to war. So us believing in the literalness of revelation has caused war. That's what he said. By the way, he's an apostate. How about this guy, Brian McLaren? Another apostate. Mocks the fundamentalist expectations, the literal second coming of Christ. He even mocks the literal second coming with its attendant judgments on the world, and assumes the world will go on like for hundreds of thousands of years, he says. He calls the literal imminent return of Christ pop evangelical eschatology. He goes, it's the eschatology of abandonment. He says the book of Revelation is not a book about the distant future, but is a way of talking about the challenges of the immediate present. Really? What do you do with the Antichrist? Again, apostate. How about this guy? Rick Warren. 
another apostate. He says this, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted them to concentrate on their missions in the world. He said, in essence, the details of my return are none of your business. What is your business is the mission I have been given to you. Focus on that. He tells readers, this is in the purpose-driven life, by the way, about biblical prophecy. He says, if you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on fulfilling your mission, not figuring out prophecy. Really? I don't think Jesus said that. He then adds the section in the purpose-driven life to the book that Satan would have you sidetracked from your mission. And he quotes Jesus out of context, saying, anyone who lets himself be distracted by studying biblical prophecy for the work I have planned for him is not fit for the kingdom of God. Really? Studying prophecy gets me off track? It actually says the opposite in the Scripture. It puts me on track. How about this guy? Dan Kimball. He says he rejects dispensational theology and the doctrine of imminent rapture and move to his current position that the kingdom of God is here and now. Really? It's here and now? If it is, I'm very disappointed. I'm very disappointed. Satan is bound for a thousand years? I don't think so. I see him active in the world. How about this guy? Ed Stetzer used to be at Lifeway. Now is at Wheaton College. Used to be very conservative. Now it's a liberal, becoming very liberal. He talks about the rapture being imminent. He goes, when the disciples had an inordinate interest in the end times, much like we do today in North America among evangelicals, Jesus said, do not get focused on that. Again, just repeating what Rick Warren said. How about this guy, Oz Guinness and David Wells? He goes, Christians who recognize globalism as the end time sign are cast as a pit of fallen, he calls us, bad-tempered and surly persons who apparently hold a distorted view of Christianity. Huh. Oh, the next guy, Robert Schuller. He's dead now. He said, don't let eschatology stifle your long-term thinking. Wow. I think we have one more, right? Do we have one more? Yeah, Hank Kennegraff. He recently apostatized into Orthodox. Became, Orthodox is almost like becoming Catholic. He's left the faith and went into Orthodox teachings now. Believes in works-based salvation. Here's the deal, though. We saw this a long time come before he apostatized into orthodoxy. He claimed that us, those who believe in the literalness of the book of Revelation, are a cultic fringe like Mormonism. He labels pre-tribulationism as blasphemous. He blames evangelical Christians for causing the Middle East terrorism. And he says we're racist because we're pro-Israel. This is what we're talking about. Now, I show all of that to you to realize, do you understand now why there's a blessing attached to this? Do you see the pushback? Do you see what these people are saying? Let me ask you this question before we move on. Obviously, it's Satan that's behind all this, right? Why? Why would Satan be so opposed to the book of Revelation? Rather than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he's definitely against the Bible, and you know that, right? But why this particular book? Why this one? Easy. It spells his doom. It tells you and I how he's defeated, how the Antichrist, his son, is defeated. And how Satan is thrown into the lake of fire eventually. It spells his doom. It's the only book of the Bible that spells out how he's executed in that sense, so to speak. Now, he can't die, but he's going to be confined to the lake of fire eventually. He's confined for a thousand years and is demonic. So, obviously, he doesn't want anyone knowing this. But also, what does the book of Revelation do for the believer? It gives us hope that evil will be destroyed. And believe it or not, The book of Revelation, when used right, causes salvation in people. You know why? It scares them, and rightfully so. It scared me into salvation. That's how I got saved. I got saved by listening to Dr. David Jeremiah preach the book of Revelation. After several weeks of listening to it, and you get to Revelation 13, as an unbeliever at 19, I got scared to death. 
I do not want to go into the tribulation. I do not want to go to hell. But what was coming on this earth frightened me, and I got frightened into salvation. You better believe it's effective. Of course, he doesn't want to preach. Prophecy causes an urgency in evangelism. That's why he doesn't want it. It gives a believer hope. It encourages evangelism. And it shows believers what's going on in the last day so they know how to effectively live their lives and make wise decisions and even know how to pray. Now, what is this blessing you're talking about, Brandon? What is this blessing? If you read, hear, and obey the book of Revelation, you've got to do all three, you will receive a blessing. Okay, what does it do? Okay, by doing these things and studying the book, what it does is it has temporary blessings for you and eternal blessings. The temporary blessings is that you will be watchful and you will be alert. That's what Jesus said he wanted us to be. Watch, therefore, he kept saying. What does that mean? It means that you are understanding the plan and purpose of God in the world. See, here's what Satan wants you to think about. He wants you to think that Christianity is simply you and God, and that's it. Now, it's partly that, but Christianity or the Bible has geopolitical implications. It's bigger than just a personal religion like Buddhism, right? It's bigger than that. It's bigger than you. There are things that are happening outside of you that you have to pay attention to. And you see the hand of God all in the world and what he is doing. It's just not about you. What Satan has done to Christianity, American Christianity, is made it a personal, private religion without any implications outside of the person. Christianity is not like that. It is personal, but it's, it's public as well, and it goes to geopolitical implications because of prophecy. So basically, then you understand the plan and purpose of God. That becomes a blessing because you learn how to live your life differently. You can see the signs of the times, and you prepare differently. You think differently. You pray differently. It gives you discernment. You can handle tough times better because you know in the end, evil is destroyed. It gives you hope. It energizes you for evangelism. It also encourages you to live a holier life. If you know Jesus could come back for you any moment, what does that do to the kind of life you live? Again, all of this prevents worldliness. It makes you stand up and stand in the gap for truth. And you realize where this world is going. That gives you temporal blessing. It's spiritual blessing, but it's temporal blessing. It makes you a different kind of believer. Versus those who don't know prophecy. Now, if you live your life in watchfulness, in anticipation, which gives you more righteousness, more holiness in your life, of course you're going to be rewarded because of that. And then Paul was told Timothy, here's how the reward will come. He said, said this in 2 Timothy 4.8. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Did you see that? There's a qualification on getting this reward. The believer must love his appearing. They must love prophecy. They must study it. They must be watchful in order to get this thing. Now, what is it? It's a crown. What does a crown mean? Authority, rank. Believers who anticipate the Lord's coming, expect the rapture, understand prophecy, study it, watch it, will get a crown of rank, and they will be ranked higher in the kingdom than other believers who refuse to look at it. So all those churches, all those pastors, all those believers who refuse to acknowledge prophecy will be lower ranked than other believers who studied prophecy and loved his appearing. There's rank in the Messianic kingdom, yes. Third point, we'll end on this. We must watch for the things contained in prophecy and be on alert for the fulfillment of these things. So the idea is you need to span what's happening in the world. Verse 3, it's a small phrase, but it's very profound. He says, for the time is near. Now, what does he mean by that? Again, it doesn't mean immediately what he is saying. He wrote this in 95 AD. 
What he is saying for the time, it's a different word in the Greek. It's kairos. It has to do with a season, an era. So that he's saying the season or the era for this, this last days, these, the, this tribulation period, is near or next in God's calendar. He's not saying it's immediate, but he says the next event in biblical history is this era of time. So you and I are living in the church age. And as predicted, we're seeing the signs for the end of the church age. And what was the major sign? Apostasy. We would see apostasy happen. And it's exactly what is happening all around us. And we also see the run-up for the tribulation. So we're in this period of time where the church is dying and the remnant's going to be left out of it. And then the, the overlap with the prophetic scenario going forward is overlapping. We're seeing both eras, one coming to an end and one starting to begin. We're in those last days. And he says, that's what's next on God's calendar. That's why you're seeing a run-up of a global government. That's why you're seeing a run-up of global economy. That's why governments are taking over economies. Taking over health care, taking over all this. This is why you're not seeing borders anymore. This is why you're seeing an embracing of communism. This is why you're seeing the, the, the embracing of technology that can control everybody. Why? You're seeing the overlap of what the Antichrist is going to use to, use to control the whole world. Because it's next on the calendar. Paul, even when he wrote Romans, said this, The night is almost gone, the day is near. And he wrote that 2,000 years ago. He's right. The night is almost gone. The day is near. The day of the Lord is near. Jesus said we wouldn't know the day or the hour. You know that. But Paul in 1 Thessalonians said you would know the season. Because I would not let you be ignorant, brethren, concerning the times and seasons. See, believers who are aware and watchful know the season. And we're in that season that's right in the last days before. But some believers don't even know that. They don't even see the season. So what's the idea here, Brandon, before we stop? What John is saying is he is stating where he got the information and that this is next in God's calendar, and it's making a demand on us. And the obedience that we're supposed to have by him stating this is watchfulness. Be watching. It's coming next. But the devil wants you to be asleep. The devil wants you to be lulled to sleep. And I'm going to tell you how he's doing it. Hey, it's not only the fault of the seminaries and the pastors and the churches not preaching this. But if you go into the congregations, the congregations are just as guilty. Why? They go to churches that teach worldliness. Living for now, your best day ever, right? It's worldliness. When you focus in on the here and now, you get sleepy spiritually. You know, it was Francis Schaeffer, a long time ago, made an interesting comment about America. He said, the American Christians will be put to sleep by two things. And he's right. He hit the nail on the head. He said, the first thing that will put Americans to sleep is affluence. They have too much. And their affluence will get them to be worldly and distracted. It's funny because that's what missionaries pray for us in America. When I talk to missionaries that are in other countries, they say, man, I'm praying for you, Brandon. Why? Because we know the temptation of worldliness in America, and it's all over the place. It puts people to sleep because you're focusing on the here and now, what I'm having. Second thing is personal peace. He kind of explained it this way. If you can give a believer some quietness in his life, no disruptions, they go to work, nothing really happens at work. They go home, they sit there and watch the tube or whatever, and they zone out. They become zombies. They check out. If you've got a person like that, Satan's got them because they're not watching. As long as he can sit there and watch TV and not be bothered day in and day out, nothing disruptive in his life, they'll go to sleep. Affluence and personal peace, that's what he was talking about, will put people to sleep. And that is exactly what's happened in America. Because, guys, think about the Laodicean church, which we will study, the indifferent church. What did they have? Affluence and personal peace. 
And they were asleep. And in fact, Jesus said, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Watch, therefore, you do not know the day or the hour. Do you remember playing the game, hide-and-go-seek, when you were little kids? And we would count. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi. Three Mississippi. Count slower. I need more time to hide. Four Mississippi. Five Mississippi. Six Mississippi. Whatever. Get to ten. Ready or not, here I come. The countdown has started. That's what John is saying. I don't know where we're at in the count, but I can tell you this. The last days have started because of the world wars Jesus predicted. And they did happen in World War I and continued in World War II. The sign has been given for the last days to start. We don't know how long we have, but they have started. I'll talk more about that when we get into it a little bit later. Where is Jesus on the count? Five Mississippi? Ten Mississippi? How close are we? Because one day he's going to say, in in the near future, ready or not, here I come. I hope you're ready. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.